the pandemic really laid bare to how fragile uh, our physician shortage crisis has made our nation. This is the Voices in Health Law podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I'm your host, Felicia Ziet of Athene Law in San Francisco. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest today is a man who went from packing boxes, earning minimum wage in the Coachella Valley, to being one of the visionaries in Congress during COVID and the aftermath, Congressman Raul Ruiz. He's going to share his insights with us today about the impending mental health pandemic, how we as a nation bolster our country's healthcare workforce, and how the COVID pandemic affected the Latino communities. Congressman Ruiz was the first Latino to earn three graduate degrees from Harvard, a doctor of medicine, a master's in public policy, and a master's in public health policy. He has recently been selected as the chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Not a bad career arc for a kid raised by farm workers in California's Coachella Valley. The views expressed in this podcast do not represent the position of the American Bar Association, its sections, or its members. So Congressman Ruiz, thank you so much for joining us today. It is so wonderful to be here with you, Felicia. So for our ABA members who have not had the pleasure of meeting you before, how does one go from growing up in the Coachella Valley to Congress? Grit. It's all about grit and resiliency and perseverance and having a dream uh, ever since I was a young boy to uh, get an education so I can come back and serve uh, the community. As you mentioned, my parents were farm workers. I lived in a trailer park growing up. Uh, my older brother was the first to graduate from high school, uh, the first to go to college as well. And, uh, and I remember I was uh, four years old when my mother asked me, son, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I looked at her and, I, and she was the angel. She still is an angel in the community. She gives the shirt off her back to anybody who needs one. And I asked her, well, mom, you know, what do you call people that help others like you? And she was very smart. She said, a doctor, mijo a doctor son. And so ever since I wanted to be a doctor so that I can, so that I can uh, help and, and help other people and, and serve the community. And when I was going to uh, college, my parents didn't know how they were going to pay for school. Uh, my older brother was already in college. Uh, and I remember that day very well uh, when my mother uh, tried to prime me and let me know that we might not be able to afford it. And I said, oh, no, I, I, my dream is to be a doctor and come back and serve. And so I told my dad I was going to help him. And of course, he looked at me uh, surprised, like, what are you going to do? You work in the packing house, sweeping the floors and stacking boxes, working minimum wage. Uh, you know, how are you going to help me pay for college? And so what I did is I put on the one suit I owned. It was one of those god awful itchy blue suits. Uh, that fit me awkward because I, I bought it two sizes larger thinking that I was going to continue to grow. Uh, but I was 17. So that was pretty much uh, it for me. But I borrowed a briefcase. I typed the typewriter. I went walking to, uh, be, uh, in the hot desert summer uh, uh, heat at about 110 degrees, walking to small businesses, pulling out my contract and asking the business owner, the clerk or whoever would pay attention to invest in, in their community by investing in my education because I made a promise of, of that I was going to be a doctor and coming home and serving the community. And 17 years later, after getting my, my medical training, I came back to work as an emergency physician in, uh, at uh, one of the local hospitals, Eisenhower Health, here in the Coachella Valley. 
And right up until your election to Congress, you were working in that emergency room. That gives you a really unique perspective on the mental health pandemic that we're, we're expecting to see around the corner. What do you think this nation can do to prepare for that wave of mental health issues that come on the heels of the COVID pandemic? Well, it's very interesting, Felicia, because uh, you know I'll, I'll break this down according to the different uh, different uh, categories of, of of my my training. So first is the medical side. Uh, one is that we're seeing an increase in anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, feeling isolation, feeling despair and hopelessness because of having to not uh, go to work and and being socially distanced to the degree that we have and plus a lot of anxiety in people who have chronic illnesses and, and, and those trigger uh, the symptoms of, of severe anxiety and depression with people who are, have generalized anxiety. But in addition to that, what's very interesting is that we're realizing that even people who are actively infected with the COVID-19, uh, that two uh, months, three months later can develop signs of anxiety and even psychosis. So we don't know what the long-term mental health effects of COVID-19 infection is on people, even if they didn't experience an acute illness. So, so that's one dimension in the medical part. The other dimension is the policy and, and the public health and creating the systems needed. Uh, we need to first defend access to mental health, and then we need to go on offense and expand access to mental health. As you know, the Affordable Care Act created the essential health benefit component of health insurances and mental health was one of those components. So, so, and that's another part of the battle that we constantly have in Congress in my committee in Energy and Commerce Health Subcommittee. And the first thing on the chopping block is going to be the mental health services and the reimbursement rates to those providers. And so instead of putting that on the chopping block, we need to expand Medicaid and really encourage those states that never expanded Medicaid from the Affordable Care Act to do so because that's the insur insurance that most uh, mental health uh, patients rely on to get care and the treatment. The other is we, we need to look at the systems approach and understand that, that you can have coverage, but if you don't have the providers to provide the services, uh, whether they're psychologists, psychiatrists, or whether they're life coaches or other kind of paraprofessional that helps increase the wellness and exercise your, your happy gene, then, then uh, coverage isn't gonna really help. So we need the infrastructure, not only in the workforce, but also in, in inpatient beds, in, in mental health centers, that, it, that we can focus with an equity lens to make sure that the people and communities that, uh, that need them the most get those services. Right, well, and I think currently a lot of patients unfortunately end up using the emergency department at general acute care hospitals as their entree to seeking behavioral health services. Absolutely. And, and what was your experience with that when you were working in the emergency well, department? You know, not only in my personal experience working in, in the emergency department uh, in Pittsburgh, at Boston, and in the Coachella Valley, but as I've traveled and visited different hospitals throughout the nation in my capacity as a congressman providing oversight and really gathering information, there's a common theme. 
A common theme is that our frontline emergency departments are overloaded with, uh, uh, with mental health patients that simply uh, stay longer than they should uh, in the emergency department because there's no place for them to go whether it's, it's they're involuntarily uh, kept because they're a danger to themselves or uh, they, there's not enough inpatient beds to follow that uh, psychiatric care that they need in an acute crisis scenario where you have a young 20-year-old uh, with psychosis that is presenting with hallucinations and everybody's concerned, nobody knows what's going on. And so they need that inpatient diagnosis and treatment at that, at that early stage. And so I've had the experience where I've had to uh, involuntarily commit a person who tried to commit suicide in, in, and have them evaluated by a psychiatrist per law. And they stay in my emergency department for eight days, eight days. And it's uh, and and you have to get a sitter uh, to be there 24/7 to observe them so that they don't uh, you know hang themselves or cause any harm with any of the equipment inside of those emergency departments. So so that's a bed that's utilized for observation when in fact it needs to be used for traumas and heart attacks and any other acute emergencies that the emergency departments are uh, um, really keen on. And I introduced a bill called the Improving Mental Health Access for the Emergency Department Act uh, to help patients who are suffering in the emergency department uh, get that follow-up care that they need by providing millions of dollars in grant funds so that local emergency departments can work with their existing community partners in identifying more efficient ways of moving the uh, psychiatric patients with acute needs uh, at, out of the emergency department with good follow-up, either directly to care or a follow-up uh, uh, as an outpatient. Thank you for sharing your firsthand experience with these very complex issues. I'm curious what your thoughts are on what the root causes are of these mental health issues that we're seeing in the emergency departments. Not enough acute care beds, or just not having enough behavioral health professionals, or is it something else? Well, you, you need to do both, and you need to do both in parallel. Because, uh, And the other thing that, uh, that we also need to do a better job in our country is how to prevent uh, mental health illnesses. Uh, just like we can prevent physical illnesses by, by uh, understanding the appropriate diet and exercise needs and what to avoid in terms of uh, smoking and, uh, and uh, an overconsumption of alcohol and other things, uh, uh, behavioral changes, there are ways that we can augment our wellness uh, through uh, meditation uh, uh, and other types of exercises that will help us better cope with life's difficulties. Uh, so we need to really focus on mindfulness, for example, in our, in our different faith institutions, in our schools, to really develop a perspective of how to strengthen our emotional brains to, to, to be able to cope, be resilient, and, and live a happy life. Because happiness is a major component of our health. Uh, and there's ways we can exercise happiness and build on that. But in addition to that, we need to provide the care uh, for those who are no longer happy and that start to move into the clinical diagnoses of dealing with anxiety uh, and other more severe 
uh, uh, illnesses like uh, psychoses of any different forms, whether it's through their bipolar illnesses, severe clinical depression, schizophrenia, uh, or other incapacitating type of illnesses. And there's two things. One is we got to make sure that we get them early uh, so that we avoid an acute uh, breakdown where they require inpatients uh, so that we educate and we treat and we provide the combination of treatment, which is oftentimes uh, pharmaceutical with behavioral counseling. And, and we have a full wraparound services for those individuals. That's the best methodologies out there, even for, for opioid uh, abuse and other types of illnesses. But we also need to understand that people will present to the emergency department with acute psychosis and other kinds of, of mental health disorders that do in fact require uh, inpatient uh, utilization. And so uh, we still have to figure out what is the appropriate benchmark in terms of uh, patient beds per, per, um, per population. There are some benchmarks out there, but we need to do it in an equity uh, fashion so that the communities that need them the most uh, get uh, the resources that they need. And let's follow up on that. The communities that need them the most, you know, making sure there's an equitable distribution of healthcare workforce isn't just an issue for behavioral health uh, providers, but for, and you know that the resources in the more rural areas of California are starkly different than if you're looking at the urban areas. How did the COVID pandemic lay bare the weaknesses in our healthcare uh -oh. workforce? Well, we saw the images of uh, the ICUs and the emergency departments, our front lines on TV uh, in New York and other places in California, where, where they, were, they were literally um, breaking down. We saw the fatigue, uh, we saw the gaps, uh, and we saw the expressions that, that, that this is dangerous for our country. Uh, and so we, the pandemic really laid bare to how fragile uh, our physician shortage crisis has made our nation. In fact, if you think about a rural emergency department, and oftentimes um, on average, you can have 12, maybe 16 emergency medicine doctors that do 10, 12 hour shifts, maybe one uh, person at a time, maybe two uh, in a more smaller uh, uh, in a smaller uh, rural hospital. Think about if eight of them have to be quarantined because of an exposure to COVID-19. Now you're talking about six to eight um, emergency medicine doctors taking care of a pandemic in the rural hospital without sleep for at least 14 days or longer. Uh, and if they're sick, uh, even longer, right? Uh, two, three months. And so one of my earliest warnings to Vice President Pence when he met with the Democratic caucus, I was one of four Democrats that uh, Speaker Pelosi chose to, to really speak about on the issue, given my expertise, was if he had a plan to allocate personnel in the workforce because we, you, they were going to see uh, these, these, these uh, fragile front lines break down. Uh, he was looked at me inquisitively, but later on, uh, I recommended or I recommend at that time that he would need to mobilize federal uh, personnel to fill in the gaps in some of our in some of the areas in our country. And indeed, they eventually did, including sending uh, doctors into my district when uh, when we needed them the most. But 
this is one of the reasons why we have disparities. This is one of the reasons why um, you see the rural communities, Latino, Hispanic, um, Black America, uh, uh, Native uh, Americans have worse outcomes is because we have a distribution and uh, inequities in the provider workforce in those areas that have the highest uh, disparities in comorbidities. In fact, uh, Felicia, in my district, I did research back before I ran for Congress in 2010, where I actually counted the full-time equivalency or the hours that physicians worked in our medically underserved areas. And in the Eastern Coachella Valley and in a city called Desert Hot Springs, which are designated as medically underserved areas, I counted one full-time equivalent per nine uh, physician, one full-time equivalent physician per 9,000 residents. To be considered medically underserved, it's a, it's a one to 3,500. And the benchmark in our country is one to 2,000. So this is not uncommon in America, uh, and we need to address that right away. We've been listening to Congressman Raul Ruiz speaking about the mental health pandemic. After this message from the ABA on our sponsors, we'll hear him talk more about exciting reforms to medical education and the impact of COVID on the Latinx community. The Health Law Section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Alex Partners and Pinnacle Health. Now back to the program. And you have Champion providing additional funding for medical education programs. What do you think that should be the highest priorities to strengthen America's healthcare workforce? Well, we, you know, we don't have enough GME or residencies uh, to meet the demand of our current medical school graduates. Uh, so we need to expand that. And we, we recently passed uh, the CARES Act, which had uh, created, or I'm sorry, the Omnibus in 2020 that created 200 more residency slots. And then the American Rescue Plan created 1,000 more. Uh, we don't have a strategic uh, plan on, on what is the need, the, the overall need, not only in primary care, but in specialist. But, uh, but one of the ways that we can address both the, uh, the physician shortage and the equity issue is by investing in teaching health centers. And those are the federal qualified health centers that develop residency programs that have an incredible success rate of, of not only uh, uh, producing more physicians, but physicians who go into primary care who stay in those medically underserved areas where the FQHCs are located. And that's key. I've been really focusing on, on financing that uh, uh, program. Uh, it's been very uh, um, successful and, and, and very helpful. And then the other thing I'm doing is, is I introduced another bill called uh, the GME uh, Flexibility uh, Cap uh, or expanding um, uh, the ability for hospitals to, to have more time to develop residencies in the full gamut of specialists that they need for that area. So currently there's, they have about five years to develop 
all the specialties that they need. And in a rural area with low resources, it takes more time to collaborate and to build these programs. And you usually build them by starting your primary care, your general surgery. And then from those, you expand to your specialty uh, uh, services in surgery or in, or in medicine in order to, to get the full gamut and, and meet the full gamut of needs uh, in primary care and, and specialists that a community needs. So we're gonna pivot a little bit from those topics. And I'm curious what your perspective is on how the Latinx community has fared during this pandemic. Oh man, the Latinx community has really been devastated by this pandemic. Um, this, is, this, is, uh, this is very heartbreaking for our nation. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that, that it was predictable. Uh, it's something that those of us who have worked in the health disparities world and policy and advocacy and medicine and public health uh, have suffered through uh, over the many decades. Uh, but uh, Latinos, uh, Hispanics, Latinx uh, individuals have bared, bared the brunt of infection rates, hospitalizations, and deaths. Okay. Uh, and disproportionately, and there are many different factors. Let me just give you the example of farm workers who are overwhelmingly uh, Latinx uh, in our country. Uh, first of all, they uh, comprise most of the essential workforce. So they had to go out and interact and be in the public's face. Uh, two, they lack oftentimes profession, uh, the protections in their profession to keep them safe. So they didn't have the face masks, there was no social distancing, no time or breaks to wash their hands, uh, especially out in the fields, for example. Three, they go into substandard housing that's overcrowded. And it's not uncommon to have three generations living in a household with two bedrooms. So there's no ability to quarantine in a basement or an attic or an individual necessarily having their own room. And so there is a large spreading uh, a contagious rate within the family and the community. Then you don't have the medical resources, the education, the outreach, uh, or the testing to identify to, to get them the care that they need so they get really sick and they get really sick fast. Also, because there's already a high chronic health disparity problem with diabetes, diabetes, obesity, asthma, respiratory illnesses within the Latin uh, community. So you see, these are all in systematic ingredients of a failed healthcare system with disparities that, that really produce these results. In addition to that, currently, despite having the highest death rate, highest in, in infectivity rate, uh, infection rates, hospitalization rates, Latinos have the lowest vaccination rates. And, and that's a shame. So I've really been working hard to really educate my colleagues, the administration, and taking a hands-on approach as a doctor and a practitioner myself to talk about how uh, methodology and outreach is important in our work to, to save lives with an equity focus. And an equity focus isn't a theoretical um, uh, social justice idea in the ideological spectrum. Equity is just basic pragmatic public health. You take the resources to those who need them the most. And if you do that, you save the most lives. It's, 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 it's very simple. It's a very simple equation that we really need to, to, uh, to implement. Thank you so much. 
Our guest today has been California Congressman and Dr. Raul Ruiz, and this has been Voices in Health Law. I'm Felicia Z of Athene Law. Thanks for listening.